1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. Welcome to the
0: New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm talking to Sandra Eder, who is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of the brand new book, How the Clinic Made Gender, The Medical History of a Transformative Idea, which is just out earlier this year from the University of Chicago Press. Sandra, welcome to the show. Hi, Claire. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, sure. I started out as a gender scholar. I did my first degree in, uh, at the University of Vienna in history, um, where I wrote, um, um, a BA thesis, uh, Magister Phil's thesis on lesbian pulp fiction. And I was really interested in the question of gender and sexualities. I then went to Columbia University um, to do an MA in American Studies. And it was there that I encountered uh, Rebecca Jordan Young, who is a feminist science uh, scholar. And she really inspired me to act that it would be actually possible as a historian to engage with scientific texts with medical texts to read about to read sexological studies and to critically analyze and understand them and this kind of led me to become a historian of medicine. I um, uh, did my PhD at um, the Institute of the History of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University, and there I worked with um, Nathania Comfort and then Todis on the history of medicine science, and then um, with the gender historians Judith Walkowitz and Mary Ryan. And so, in a way, I've always uh, I switched from a gender historian looking from, out, from the outside on medicine to a medical historian who's uh, engaging with the ways in which medicine and science were involved in uh, constructing and developing the ideas of uh, gender and sexuality that so influence our lives.
0: And how did you come to write How the Clinic Made Gender? Was the book based on your PhD dissertation?
1: Yes, it was based on my PhD um, dissertation. I was really intrigued by the idea that uh, gender or some form of gender uh, concept was first formulated in the clinic and in the 1950s. It seemed very contradictory to me. I really, and as often in my work, I'm just... uh, um I think the, the desire to understand why, to ask why and how, really inspired me to pursue this further. And it took it, and being at the history of medicine, took it in a very different direction that I had first presumed. And so um, I, um, I, I wrote my dissertation uh, on clinical encounters with intersex children at the Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic. And then over the years, as I developed it in the book, I just broadened the approach to kind of include the before and the after and the move beyond the just clinical space and bring the world into the clinic and the clinic into the world, if that makes any sense.
0: In the introduction to How the Clinic Made Gender, you write that the book's contribution, and this is sort of where you you lay out the, the main argument, is um, this is a quote, to show how convergent and multidisciplinary ideas about masculinity and femininity coalesced in the, pra- coalesced in the practices of those working in the pediatric endocrinology clinic at Johns Hopkins. Um, and you go on to do this in the book by using patient records from the clinic um, to use, you write, to reconstruct clinical encounters at the time when gender was first being formulated. I would love it if you could tell us um, about how you use patient records.
1: So for the book, I um... I use patient records I I really wanted to use patient records uh for two related but slightly different reasons and so one was that I was really interested and inspired but different praxeographic approaches to medicine, that is to look at how things, how ideas or concepts or treatments or identity come into being uh, through doing something. So in the sense of the clinic, it, it, uh, I was interested in not in polished medical reports, how uh, uh, that describe some discovery about how sex was determined, but actually, how do they actually do it in the clinic? So to really embrace and look at the messiness and um, uh, of the clinical encounter, and to observe. Uh, physicians and other medical practitioners at work in uh, uh, discovering the series, working through them, making mistakes, making errors, uh, and figuring things out in a way. So that was one motivation. But uh, I think the even stronger motivation was because in a way the book um, necessarily is a um, It's very focused on physicians' perspectives and ideas that are developed by physicians and by psychologists. I really wanted to engage with the voices and the experiences of the patients at the clinic. Now, as we know... Uh, patient records, despite what their name says, are really not um, often not a good source, especially modern ones, to discover, discover quote unquote, the kind of authentic voice of the patients because they're highly mediated, the, whatever the patient say, says is kind of forced into this pre-printed, pre-standardized formats. It's very much dominated by the idea, by the ideas of the voices of the patients, the interns, the nurses, the social workers, so one of the challenges I I, I felt, but I, I but I but was really important for me to overcome is to engage with that, especially with these records, which are pediatric records. So uh, the patient in this record often is a small child, so they're silent in the record, and it's the family that speaks for them, and then they grow up and become more of a more of a person in. Over the years, and that emerges in in these um, in these files. And one of the things that I wanted to do is to create this space, to create the to hint at the stories of how these patients might have experienced. Um, these often jarring clinical encounters and these lives that were really mediated by medicine. And so in a way I read against the grain, I looked at disruptions, I looked at small comments. So I really dug through all these hundreds and hundreds of pages to tease out these moments of resistance, of uh, defiance, but also of cooperation of seeking out the clinic as a, Uh, sometimes as partners against overprotective parents, and I wanted to account for that experience and put it in the book in an extra space that pushes against these other chapters that are very much, very often more focused on how physicians find out things and how they kind of create this particular knowledge about gender. So I want to kind of give a voice, not the voice, but a voice to the experience that these children and then teenagers and then young adults had in the clinical space. And this, you do this just beautifully. It's, it's just beautifully done
0: the way that you weave the patient's stories into the text, um, sort of between the main, more traditional historical chapters. Um, it's really lovely. Um, i I'd like to turn our attention to those more traditional historical chapters, where you're sort of um, b- building your your argument um, and presenting us with the evidence. Um, if we start, if we start, can we if we start at the beginning, um, or let's start at the beginning with just some some basic terminology. What is what's congenital adrenal hyperplasia? Is that, is that abbreviated CAH? Yes.
1: So CAH is uh, an inborn hyperplasia of the adrenal gland, which results in a lack of cortisol and an overproduction of a precursor of androgen. And that often causes life-threatening um uh, metabolic imbalances uh, such as salt loss in infants so some the severe form of this uh inborn condition can be um uh life threatening but not all forms are so some are not and so the condition also often results in um what is referred to as ambiguous or male presenting genitalia in newborns even in those whom um in whom the metabolic effects uh, were not so severe. And this condition had long been known as genogenital syndrome, um, for, named, named after the most obvious sign uh, that is, either male appearing genitals in double uh, X chromosome children or uh, sexual precocity in um, children with uh, XY chromosomes.
0: And so, um, so the really the center of how the clinic made gender is the Johns Hopkins Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic. Um, how was um, C.A.H. treated by Lawson Wilkins at the Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic in the nineteen
1: forties? So it's important to know as I said before, that the the condition affects the whole body and may in some cases be life-threatening. Even so... Often the reaction, or the notice—it uh, was most uh, the most noticeable effects were the kind of um, the, the effects on on the children, children's uh, genitals. But Wilkins comes across the first cases are actually um, boys with uh, CAH uh, who young patients who waste away in this clinic, die or die up abruptly, and he's really interested in the. Kind of endocrinological aspects of the condition. So one of the first incentives for him to start his research program and to start treating is to actually um, find uh, some kind of therapeutics for these for these children with severe with severe cases who are uh, most likely not to survive. And it's very frustrating and and um, and saddening to uh, to see. These uh, early cases where children just perish and despite all intervention. And you Hampton Young, who was um, a urological expert, uh, urological surgeon at Hopkins and the previous expert on CH or on genital syndrome, as he called it. Um, had a surgical approach. So he removed the whole parts of the adrenal gland, but all the children kind of wasted away and died after the treatment. And so what Wilkins does, he proposes an enochronological approach. And he's looking for a substance that will... Um, combat the, the effects of the, the hyperplasia. And so uh, he tried out different substances in the 1940s, which failed to show any promising uh, results. But then in the 1950s, he started using the steroid hormone cortisone, whose therapeutic effects were first demonstrated in 1949. So the substance was then successful in keeping children with CH alive. And so As this is happening, Wilkins is also asking the question, how these children should live? Right? this concern, especially those with XX chromosomes and male-appearing genitals? So, for example, before cortisone was introduced, Wilkins actually thought that these children should be raised in the male sex. Even so, he... Saw them as females that would have, um, female reproductive organs and, uh, and, uh, but he favored social functionality for sex assignment rather than letting chromosomes or gonads, uh, dictate his decision. So for him, it's really the questions how can they live? And it's a very unusual recommendation at the time because everybody would have kind of determine the sex of these children to be female but what he's saying, and that's the interesting part about Wilkins' approach, because he's not a sexologist he doesn't do that kind of research he's really saying This out of a kind of clinical pragmatism and also the conviction that these girls with CH could and should be raised as boys because they look male and they would not be able to fulfill their female roles, that is to get married and to have children. And so it's an interesting incident where... Um, where he actually, uh, where we see how these uh, kind of social concerns of health uh, influence treatment recommendations and uh, recommendations of care and assignment of sex in a in a in in a very direct way.
0: And so, how does Wilkins become? You call him a decisive figure in the transformation of sex and the formulation of what we today refer to as the sex. Gender binary. Um, how does he become a, deci- a decisive figure like this?
1: So for me, it was really um, the focus on Wilkins was really uh, important to decenter John Money a little bit, who's always been the prominent figure in the story and who's still a prominent figure in the in the book. But I think it was really to show there's a clinical continuity, like even before we have this. Uh, formulation of gender that money then later brings to the clinic that we already have a practice of gender, the idea that children can be raised in a sex that is not the biological sex and fulfill this role that this can be shaped. By, and, and this comes directly out of the clinic from somebody who does not contrary to money, engage with psychological theories or thinks about, um, uh, um, kind of cultural relativism or social theories is really something that emerges from the clinic and from a clinical pragmatism, the things so of what can we do with these children. And it emerges from the idea that even if sex is more complicated and variant, we still have to, these children still have to have a clearly defined binary sex so they can, you know, fulfill a social role. And um, yeah, I think that's up there
0: okay well, well then then the book does does go on to get into um, psychological construction so I wondered if you could explain the concept of psychological sex um, it's sort of in contrast to um, anatomical sex um, and how the con- this concept was constructed
1: so again this leads us to kind of the prehistory of what happened at Hopkins in the 1950s, we can see in medical case reports uh, starting in the 1930s and 1940s that practitioners increasingly relied on um, psychoanalysis and psychiatric analysis to determine what they now call psychological sex. And, um, And they reach also a conclusion in which they say, Um, other than they might have previously argued to argue that psychological uh, sex is acquired in the course of growing up and it trumped anatomy. And um, this is really based on uh, encounters with cases where psychological sex or the sex a person lives in or identifies as or whose behavior they manifest is disconnected or does not fit um, what they would describe as anatomical sex. And so this first forces people to actually um, um, really, this, so these are mainly cases that are concerned with teenagers or young adults. Uh, and there's uh, where this discrepancy is discovered. And psychologists and psychiatrists try to make sense. Who are involved in these cases try to make sense of why, um, why, why these, um, uh, what to do with these cases? Why these young uh, teenagers, young adults, uh, even though so they have um, a male biological sex in their assumptions, uh, live convincingly, act convincingly, and feel very much as women, and so, um. Those who did these uh, psychological evaluations um, see this strong that these people have a strong identica- identification with the sex they're already living in, and they um, often remarked how convincingly and consistently these young people enacted was was than what they increasingly called psychological sex. So in a way, this category becomes important because there's a disconnect between you know ana- anatomy, your anatomy. Uh, Kind of shapes your behavior, shapes your, your 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 sexual how you behave as a man or woman. There's, if there's a discrepancy, you have to ha- find a different way to to name it. And so what they're saying is that um, that uh, psychological se- sex has to take into account that we cannot just uh, look at a child and say this this is biological sex, uh, and uh, so the the sex in which the person lives has to match it, but you have to test for psychological sex. Part of this has to do with a general psychologization of American society that starts in the 1920s, so there's a much more attention to um, um, psychological effects of everyday life of individuals, but then there's also... um, this move to towards uh, to to say this uh, that this case is really, for me, re- reveal an implicit acknowledgement that psychological sex could differ from anatomical sex as well as the assumption that the environment, social situation, upbringing, culture patterns could determine a person's psychological sex. So there's something that changes uh, that uh, that uh, puts more focus on environment, on upbringing. And acknowledge a disconnect, a possible disconnect between anatomy and psychology. And how
0: do particular medical interventions enter the picture
1: here? Um, Particular medical interventions, um, could you reformulate the question? I'm not Um, sure.
0: So, To address this uh, mismatch between psychological and anatomical sex, um, does this lead to particular kinds of of medical interventions? Oh,
1: I understand. Um, So, well, I mean, there's a a close connection, as other scholars have shown as well, of course, to kind of innovation in medical technology and medical... uh, Um, diagnostic practices on one hand. So I think certain kinds of things play an important role. I mean, um, anesthesia, uh, antisepsis, all these things over that started in the 19th century already allow different investigations or closer investigations of anatomical sex. But then there's also a move towards seeing the body increasingly after the 1920s and 1930s as malleable, as changeable. So you can actually then adjust. So if somebody, uh, has been living and uh, identifies as the, uh, has been living in the female sex there are surgical endocrinological technologies to adjust the body to uh to the sex so the body can be manipulated in many different ways and um yeah i think that's st- uh, it's not quite what you asked but i think that i stopped there
0: sure sure um mm-hmm. you mentioned john money mm-hmm. um Tell us a little bit about him. Who who is John Money, and how do you understand his kind of his earlier work as a behavioral scientist in the nineteen
1: forties and nineteen fifties? So John Money is is really a curious figure in this history, uh, in the history of an inception of gender, uh, especially in the second half of the twentieth century, because he's become such a larger-than-life figure, and he's been cast as, you know either, and I say that in my book, as a well-intended innovator, but also kind of as this evil, experimenting mad scientist, especially uh, with the case of uh, David Reimer. And he, um, he really depends on who tells the story. And so in a way, I'm doing exactly what you're asking in the book. I'm kind of taking it back to this moment in the 1940s and 1950s, where he is uh, becoming... Uh, A psychologist, a social scientist, where he uh, is this young New Zealander who went to the United States to be able to pursue graduate studies in psychology at Harvard University's um, newly founded Department of Social uh, Relations. And so I'm interested kind of what are the different ideas and different practices that he can draw on that making actually less of an eccentric but more of a typical manifestations of the different um, social scientific approaches uh, to sexuality at the time. And so one of his interests in, for example, cultural, he was really interested in culture patterns and the role of the environment in shaping behavior and that's, of course, a pro- product of the previous three decades uh, in which social scientists convincingly and passionately really argued for um, the culture and environment. Uh, Trump biology as determining Mm -hmm. factors in behavior. So that's one of the influences that's there. And then the the other important factor, I think that um, shows is a very typical what's happening in the behavioral and psychological science at the moment is really that as he's transitioning from being this kind of New Zealand uh, graduate student to a U.S. psychologist uh, at a very prominent medical campus, is to, there's this moment also, this profound shift uh, in the behavioral science where there's an increasing insistence on social determination and also the belief in that in the importance that it's really important to foster and uh, right kinds of behavior to, um, uh, uh, to child development and, and uh, child rearing. So there's a, a shift from you know, all cultures are equal valid after Second World War to this moment, this Cold War moment, where it's really, well, we want to make sure that our children become, you know, democratic citizens, that we have a particular kind of uh, well-functioning American children that uh, that we decide to have as our uh, future citizens. And so there's a a shift towards manipulating, there's a possibility of manipulating and determining behavior rather than just observing its differences. And I think it just enters this moment where this kind of um, social determination of behavior becomes really important. Important, and we see that in the way he pursues his studies, uh, both at, uh, at Harvard, in his dissertation, uh, that he writes on what he calls hermaphroditism, and, uh, and then his work at Hopkins.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Can tell us a little bit more about that work work at at Hopkins. Um, tell us about the research that John Money does with Joan and John Hampson in Lawson Wilkins Clinic.
1: So, and this is another instance where Lawson Wilkins is really important because he's been um, he's when he started treating um, um, children's. Um, uh, with CH with cortisone, he decides that he needs to have a psychological evaluation of their healthiness and what to do. Should they reassign the kids that have already been raised as uh, so the um, double X chromosome uh, children who've been raised as males should they reassign them as as women as girls, and so that 's one of the questions he 's facing and uh, what kind of intervention is warranted and that 's why he hires germani who 's just graduating at this time from from Harvard. And he's already been working with Joan Hampson, uh, who is a psychiatrist um, uh, in the neighboring Phipps clinic. And then uh, her husband, John Hampson, joins the team later. And so the team uh, is then funded to do this long-term study over the course of three years to evaluate the psychological healthiness of first only CH patients who are treated with um, cortisone, but then they expanded as the question expands to the question of uh, how should they live and how to find the right, the correct or right sex for these uh, patients. It expands to a whole array of different patients with intersex traits. So uh, it goes beyond the small group of CH patients. And what Money and Hampson uh, do is to kind of create these rosters where they separate uh, anatomical sex in multiple categories from gonad, hormonal sex, chromosomal sex, genital sex, um, and so on. And then uh, they... Pose these categories next to the category of social sex, the sex assigned at birth that the children are already living in, and then what are they measuring? And this is where money comes up with the term gender role. So it comes up with gender role uh, as a new term for psychological sex. Even so, it is really beyond it. It's more behavioral, but it comes up with the term to create this measurable, measurable category. And um, in the study, they uh, compare uh, um, anatomical sex categories to uh, uh, and social sex to the general that the child has, that the study in conversations, in observations, uh, also ask the child, um, how they identify and their conclusion is what they come to is that in most of the cases that encounter the gender role of the child matches the social sex, the sex in which the child is raised and uh, in which is currently living, despite often very obvious uh, biological contradictions. And so they create this kind of rasters, very visible, very crude, but very, very on the eye where they can show like this different, uh, how social sex always correlates with gender role. And so that leads them then to the recommendation that actually... um, uh, to a certain extent, any sex can be assigned to these children with intersex traits. Uh, we don't have to go by any biological categories. We could assign any sex to these children, but it has to be early. It has to be consistently, and it has to um, um, has to be in a way anatomically enforced. So, by that, I mean that they argue that there is um, that's really important that neither the child nor the parents have any doubts about, any, uh, about the sex assignment. And for this, it's really important, and that's where the body comes in, again, that the body of the child at least visually matches the assigned sex. So there's a focus on genitals and very invasive and problematic um, early surgery, uh, genital surgery to adjust the genitals to uh, the assigned sex. Uh, and then the focus also later on in puberty kind of uh, uh, to make sure that no doubts arise in the child of their parents. Um, so it so leads them not only to this recommendation that, you know, in a way, any sex, but one, you know, one of two. Uh, has, has to be assigned, uh, but also the whole kind of search of a treatment regime that's very invasive, that's very, uh, has um, long term consequences on the sexual and social well being of these children uh, who are operated on at an age where they obviously can't consent. So there's this mixing between this concept, which seemingly um, seem seemingly kind of very revolutionary at the time uh, to step away from this biological categories so that they can learn your sex, you can learn your gender role, but at the same time there's an insistence on kind of the social norms of sex that it has to be clearly uh, distinguished. It can be either or. There's no nothing, not a concept of just a gender non-binary or letting these children over term finding out for themselves. And the reason for that is also that they claim based on their findings of a very small group, that there's a critical phase. There's a critical phase of um, 18 months to two years in which the kind of gender role is formed. And then this kind of fluid thing that you can just assign <clears throat> becomes uh, inevitably fixed. So he kind of never says really how the kind of like he he refers to conrad lawrence and imprinting of course conrad lawrence used imprinting and critical phases it's kind of trick us very differently but he says it's basically you have this 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 gender enacted encounters with the environment but after a certain phase is fixed and then you cannot change it anymore because it's going to create uh psychological unhealthiness in this uh children
0: and so, how does this concept of gender role? How does it evolve into gender identity?
1: So, um, Mani uh, publishes. Money um, and the Hampsons publish um, a set of papers in between 1955 and 1956, and then the Hampsons leave the Conic, go somewhere else. They have a big falling out. It's a rather dramatic story <laughs> based on uh, Mani's diaries, but then. Uh, money continues to work. And so, what he has, and he um, behind him, because he offers this um, solution this kind of pragmatic solution for the for clinicians to apply to the treatment for children with intersex trait. And it comes from Hopkins, a place that has a lot of prominence uh, among medical experts. It carries a lot of weight, and people are listening to it and, and following the story and taking up those treatment recommendations in textbooks and in different uh, sites. But then psychologists also take this new term and you know, change it and play with it and adapt it to their own specific needs. And the most prominent in this case is the Californian psychologist, Robert Stoller, who was one of the first ones to take up the notion of gender and adapt it to his research priorities. Mm -hmm. And so one of his contributions to the scholarship was the differentiation between a person's conception of self so gender identity, so that's a term that he introduces, and the behavioral manifestation of gender and gender role. And Mani, of course, would have disagreed and said, like, all of these are in gender role, right? This is not something, gender role is kind of this body-mind concept, and it's 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 kind of diffused. You can't really tell where body and mind end, and you can't separate it like that. But he grudgingly takes up, you know, kind of takes up this new formulation after a while as well. And so Stoller... Says that gender identity kind of describes the sense of knowing um, to which sex, so like intuitive knowing to which sex you one belongs, and kind of this awareness whether one is, would say, I'm male or I'm female. And what it also allows is um, that because gender identity refers to the self image and this uh, kind of. Um, disrupts it uh, or dis, um, differentiates it from, from behavioral manifestations such as general, role, uh, it allows a, a broader variety of experiences in a way. So a patient could say, as Dahl uh, formulated, he could say, I'm I'm a man, but I'm not a very masculine man, if that makes sense. So it's like that their gender identity is male, but they kind of recognize that they're not very masculine, so their gender role is slightly different. And so this opens up a lot of spaces um, for uh, for um, including um, different kind of gender experiences. And Stola publishes. Um, in 1968, the book *Sex and Gender*, where he, which seems to be the first American book, I think there the word "gender" appears in the title in a non-chromatic uh, meaning, and so so it gets a lot of traction, and actually a lot of people pick up gender first to Stoller, and then kind of come back to the data that Money provides uh, with his studies, because that's one of the things that Hopkins and Money has is because of the unique position of Hopkins. Um, they have the patient data, they have so many patients of a very, relatively rare condition come to the clinic that it really gives them uh, a certain kind of power to say, we actually can talk about uh, uh, you, uh, <clears throat> these, uh, these cases with some, some kind of authority.
0: Yeah, what, what is the Hopkins Gender Identity Clinic?
1: So that actually comes later, and it's often uh, it's important to note that no uh, that uh, Money's uh, engagement with gender first happens at the pediatric chronology clinic under Wilkins, as you mentioned earlier. And so um, John and John Hampson leave, and Money stays at Hopkins and kind of becomes more prominent and more connected in the clinic, and so. There are two things that happen. Um one is that um that start so so there's a, I'm trying to think if I should start a minute. So starting in the 1950s, there's like a public medical interest in individuals who feel the strong desire to what they call change their sex and live in a sex other than their biological one. And um that has been steadily increasing. And so once uh practitioners who work on or like study uh such uh individuals or uh work with them uh increasingly start using by the 1960s mid-1960s start using gender identity as well and then money is also increasingly interested what is called kind of transsexuality at the time but to this nature, he even tries to coin his own term called contra sexism. And so as he's part of a network of psychological practitioners who are studying and treating transgender individuals and many patients are referred to him, he decides he wants to have a gender identity clinic at Hopkins. That is a clinic that is really concerned with this specific group of transgender or he calls them transsexual patients. So it's a very different space than the clinic, um, the pediatric endocrinology clinic. And so he becomes involved around 1965 in this project to install the gender identity clinic or a research unit, a clinic and a research unit at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and to involve members from different subspecialties such as psychiatrists, plastic surgeons, gynecologists, urologists, and endocrinologists to bring all these people together. And it's significant because even so, that's not the first clinic that's called gender identity clinic. The first one is actually at UCLA and established by uh, Stola four years uh, earlier. But it's the first one where they are uh, planning to actually perform what was then called sex change operations and what we would now call uh, gender affirming care and so even so hopkins in actuality performed very few such procedures it was very cumbersome to get selected and it was very expensive as i understand it um it's uh it it makes waves because it's the first prominent research hospital where such operations kind of take place on american soil and so they get a lot of attraction uh um a lot of attention for this.
0: Um, The subtitle of the book is The Medical History of a Transformative Idea. And um, your book ends by talking about the relevance of this history you tell to theorists and scholars of women's and gender studies. So I wondered if you could just, if you could talk a little bit about that, about why, why, um, why and how is this medical history relevant to people thinking about gender today?
1: I think that's a great question. And I actually think about this a lot and in um, ever-evolving ways. And And it's really important to note that there's an ongoing struggle about kind of who owns the idea of gender and who may instill it and uh, kind of define its implications and what it means. And we can see this most obviously i think it's most obvious in this you know the the different ways gender is used today i mean from what is called now gender reveal parties which are actually just celebration you know like celebrations of the uh kind of the revealing of a child's genital sex as it's observable in a sonogram or kind of this uh this fear that gender as a category carries radical implications that, you know, we now have recently seen expressed in new legislation and uh, heated debates about public bathroom usage and kind of the the oppression of many uh, of of transgender individuals in certain states. And so what I wanted to show with the book is kind of to go back to this... um, the ever-evolving category and really point out that, A, gender was and is a dynamic category. And it really, we're not always talking about the same thing. It changes over time what it means in specific contexts. And it really it's really meant to solve and describe uh, various relationships between nature and nurture uh, and biology and culture, but it's not consistent over the place. So often we might talk about gender from different perspectives, but we might talk about something completely different. So there's something about this. And then the other thing I really wanted to point out is to look at this history and to acknowledge that gender in its conceptions and births at the clinic was an inherently normative concept. So the, the gender sex-gender binary that's developed at the Johns Hopkins uh, hospital in the 1950s proposes this idea that gender role is learned and relatively independent of biology, but it's nonetheless real for them. And so there are social implications with that. It's not only becomes uh, do they claim that gender identity becomes fixed, but it's also imprinted, but there are also these cultural norms of masculinity and femininity that then um, uh, enforced and imposed even more and even more strictly on these individuals and in the long run on a, all of us right and so it was really interesting for me to point out that as um, as uh, feminist activists and scholars kind of take up this idea of gender they really I mean they've been talking about sex roles and kind of the social construction of femininity masculinity for a long time but what I wanted to show also is that they, they make gender their own in very shortly. So it's very uh, quickly that feminists point out that um, that, th- that these ideas of gender that uh, are... Uh, coined that uh, the the, the idea of gender as it is enacted. Hopkins is really very normative, very stereotypical, and they just flip it and say, well, if gender role is learned, then we can also unlearn it, we can challenge it. So they kind of take this idea and make it their own and run with it. And then the other thing that I found really intriguing I think it's really important to know is that, and again, it connects to the... um, idea that gender is a dynamic category, I was really intrigued with this, the way in which queer communities take gender and use it strategically, change its meaning, use it for all kinds of typical challenging uh use it in a way to challenge uh, stereotypical uh, um, uh, assessment of the, uh, the social norms of masculinity and femininity, so the kind of queering gender in a very interesting way. And to show all these legacies, I think, was really important for me to point to the power that we have in defining and redefining this category and the power that um, is invested you know by uh, in gender as something that can be uh, commercialized but at the same time can also be seen as uh, as really disruptive and dangerous to social norms and I think the awareness of these stories uh, um, I thought it was really important to go to these origins and to kind of see the consequences that Different formulations of gender have for different people the, the the consequences it has for people with intersex traits. The consequences it has for a kind of the different ways in which is taken up in the often, again, very normative treatment of uh, transgender individuals within the medical apparatus, uh, which forces certain kind of gender norms on them that are actually not shared by many transgender individuals of the time, but have to be performed in order to get the kind of uh, medical interventions that they're seeking. So I wanted to show that kind of the messiness and the dynamic nature of this category that is, that requires different meanings in different settings.
0: Well, that certainly comes across in the book. Um, And it is a a fascinating, um, fascinating history of a concept. Um, We've taken up a lot of your time and I have um, reached my traditional final question here at the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on next?
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for the question. That's a a tricky one. That's much harder to answer. So actually, I'm working on multiple projects. One is kind of some aspects of this story that didn't go into the book. So I'm working on um, uh, a study of how in the 1960s, 1970s, this category of the transsexual patient is constructed. And I'm also working on how a lot of transgender individuals take and change the category of sex and the interpreta- uh, uh, the category of gender and the interpretation gender in their own interaction. So I'm looking a lot of... Um, so that's one of, the, it's one of the things I wanted to pursue a little that I'm hinting at in the last chapter and I wanted to take a little bit further uh, in my research. And then the other project... Uh, Is tentatively entitled The Science of Happiness, and it's looking at um, the ways in which happiness is measured in medical encounters and used as um, treatment goal and uh, assessment of treatment success. Uh, Both in the cases uh, uh, that have to do with sexuality and gender and sex assignment, but also in a much broader context. Wow.
0: Well, those sound like fascinating projects. Um, Sandra, I want to thank you so much for sharing your work with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.